Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash genre. Over 180,000 titles to choose from from your iPhone, Android, or Kindle. That's audibletrial.com forward slash G-E-N-R-E. Weirdo bookworms unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies, and welcome to an absolutely exciting, incredible episode that we are thrilled to talk to you about. I'm Sandra. I'm Scott. Stitches is running around somewhere in the background. But what really matters, guys, is we had an interview with the author of the book we're discussing. Absolutely incredible. We are so humbled. We are so thankful for this opportunity. We got to speak to the Sarah Henning, who wrote Sea Witch. And it was a wonderful interview, too. And just make sure you check in because we'll be playing it after our normal spoiler-free review. Oh, yes, absolutely. So in case this book has been out for a little bit this summer, but in case you haven't read it yet, we're going to give you some buffer and uh, the interview is spoiler free, too. That's right. There's a few hints at, a, at some spoilery themes, but they're very soft hints. And then after our interview, we'll have our spoiler section. You guys, we are so thrilled to talk about this book. It was so amazing getting to speak to Sarah. She is a really, really cool person. Definitely the type of bookish, cool lady that you want to hang out with. She's a runner like me, only she's like a magnificent queenly runner who runs more than I do. And I am just in awe of her. So with that, let's get started. Sea Witch. Let me give you a little synopsis of this story. Sea Witch is a historical fantasy origin story of Ursula from the original Little Mermaid fairy tale. Here we have three childhood friends, Anna, Evie, and Nick. Anna tragically drowns, forcing the other two to grow into adulthood without her. Nick is a prince. Evie is secretly a witch in a world that fears and hates her. Years later, Anna returns. This young woman, so exactly like their friend, claims to not be and has no knowledge of them or her alleged former life. Who is this mysterious girl, and what does she want? So, full disclosure, I don't really pick favorites, but The Little Mermaid <laughs> is definitely top three Disney film for me. Uh, d- definitely, like, I saw this when I was very, very young child, like so many did, and I totally loved it. When I was a teenager, um, I went through, like, you know, your, your Hans Christian Andersen Brothers Grimm original fairy tale phase. Or maybe that's just me. Nah, I bet that's a lot of teenagers. And I read the origin story. And of course, you know, as we get older, we love the Disney, but we always like the weird, gruesome shiz that um that was the original tales. And this definitely is more of a retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid. But for me, as someone who just loves the Disney film so much, I, there was enough connection for me to really understand what was going on as well. That's very true. Um, so I'm, I love mermaids. I love really any magical creature. Um, I'm more of a land dweller, but I do love mermaids. And this book made me just feel intoxicated with the sea. You can like feel salt spray and brine and grit 
and there's this beautiful element of nature and darkness meeting together, which is like a huge part of my aesthetic in life. So I I really felt like a, a nice visceral connection to this book. Mermaids have historically always been kind of a balance between beauty and terror. And that's what makes them so fascinating in historical fiction and in current fiction. And this book definitely captures a lot of that. Yeah, this is set in Denmark. And um, forgive me, I don't know the original, the the actual year that it's set in, but uh, it's like 1800s. It's like around when he wrote the book. I, I believe, believe it's around 1860, 1870. It's hard to say they have steam technology. Um, I know I'm a history buff and I'm just totally flailing. And uh, yeah, uh, anyway, <laughs> it's it's old. The book creates a very nice setting for itself where it's partially historical fiction and there is real roots in, in, in history. But at the same time, it doesn't stick to it so strictly that it that it destroys some of the fantasy to it as well. Oh, no, of course. It's a genre that it's a, sub, a subgenre of fantasy that I haven't spent tons of time in. But I do like historical fantasy because I love history and I love fantasy. And it's um usually a really clean, seamless marriage of the two, just like this book. So let's talk a little bit about our experience reading this book and our experience score. So for myself, this was a page turner. I was so happy to be reading this book. It brought me a lot of joy as I was reading it. I felt myself going through the pages very quickly. I I was just very, like I said, I, I was immersed. I had to know what was going on, what was happening, and I really enjoyed escaping into Sarah Henning's fantasy world. I also score this book as a page turner, and I read this while I was on my yearly fishing trip, which I feel like always kind of colors my experience score with with books. It takes a lot to pull me away from actually having a line in the water to continue to read a book. And this definitely did it for me. I found myself picking it up between trips on the boat. And I stayed up a little later by the fire than I probably should have every night to read this book. It is absolutely a page turner. It's it's a very, very fun, exciting read. Oh, yeah, this was definitely a book that a couple of nights I read past my bedtime because I was like, but I don't want to go to sleep. I'm already in this beautiful dream. Uh, So... Part of what we said is a lot about her writing is very beautiful. This is the first book we've ever read by Sarah Henning. Uh, she's a brand new novelist. Yeah, I believe this is this is her first published novel. So she's going to be new for a lot of people, but she's so good, you guys. She's so good. There's not a lot of the things that, for me, stand out as like kind of first novel issues. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love a lot of people's first novels, but she felt very um, comfortable, very familiar. That's the perfect word for it. That's exactly what I have in my notes. Is she just felt comfortable. It seemed like something that she just knew how to do. And part Confidence. of that is because, I mean, she was a journalist before. She is used to putting words on paper. But the translation from that into actual novel writing just kind of makes this a joy to read. There's definitely something of the gothic romance to this book and that sort of seafaring journey there's a darkness uh, that runs through like a vein of inky black blood through this book. So it's not like totally cutesy, cheery fantasy. There's a dark underbelly and there's just a beautiful gothic romance to it that really appealed to me. Um, 
as a fan of dark fantasy, I always want everything to be dark and to go dark. There are very strong themes of teenage romance in this book. I think at its at its heart, this book really reads as a romance for a large portion of it. And it's true. There is a lot of darkness in it. But but understand that when you pick this up, expect it to have a lot of very fun, flirtatious teenage romance between princes and paupers. <laughs> I think that's a very cute way to put it, uh, but very fair. But like I said, I I don't think any part of this book as a YA fantasy or as a retelling comes across as cutesy, saccharine, any of those things that um, might not appeal to a lot of people. Uh, it's It strikes of just a very nice, harmonious chord without wearing out its welcome. I do think there's a pretty solid saccharine part in the middle of this book. I don't know if I agree with that well, maybe, entirely. You know, that's our different perspectives. Like for me, it still felt good, still felt salty and crunchy. Well, see, I kind of thought of this book as a stuffed cupcake. You know, you've got your cupcake You're and a it's stuffed cupcake and, and, and a really good filled cupcake. The cupcake itself is is a little bit dry, is not quite as sweet. And then you have that really sweet saccharine filling. And I felt this book really actually was like that. That's a really weird analogy. I like it's making me hungry. But it, it starts with a, a really nice introduction and introducing you to the history of witches being burned at the stake because, well, witches, and then goes into this really lovely romance before the final action and the plot really wraps everything up. And I don't want to spoil any of that, but there is that really nice, sweet center. And I actually really enjoyed that. Well, see, there you go. Again, as usual, Scott and I don't totally agree on something, but it's always shaped by your interpretation stuff you've read, how you relate and communicate with the characters in the book. So before we start talking about those characters, you mentioned something that I was going to bring up next, which is uh, the witch stuff. I loved it. Um, I've said it many times on this show. I'm obsessed with witches. I'm obsessed with anything having to do with witches. And this book does a really beautiful job of bringing the historical truths and what we know of Denmark and their witch hunts into this fantasy book and into a way that makes it digestible for the contemporary reader as well. Super fascinating stuff. It's going to get your blood up if you're a witch fan. You're going to be like, how could they do this to us? For our Dutch fans, and I see you out there, I think you're really going to enjoy this this realization of your history for me you know i'm very i'm i've become very familiar especially through you sandra i've become knowledgeable of the american witch trials of the salem witch trials and all the things that happened here i wasn't quite as aware of what happened on the other side of the pond i mean i'm i'm familiar with saint patrick i'm familiar with with, the big stuff yeah and and the crusades and all of that but there, there's there's certain things that I wasn't aware of, and, and this made me interested in reading more about it. Oh, good. I'm so glad that it did that for you. And as I kind of chimed in there, I've said it on the show before, I'm Scandinavian, super proud Scandinavian person. And um, there was like a kinship and like a relatability to this book to being set in Denmark, even though I'm not technically Danish, but I love the Danes, unlike some other my brethren out there in Scandinavia. Um 
that I just found very homey and relatable and and made me have a lot of pride in where I'm from. So I really want to start talking about characters. And, and the first question I have for you is, who is your favorite character? This one's definitely not as easy as some, but I thought about this because we always talk about who our favorite is. Evie is my favorite character. I really like Evie. Animet is actually mine. Oh, yeah. No, she is. Um, she's great. Animet is... Uh, or Anmet. There's no A. You're right. Anmet is the girl who shows up that looks like their lost friend Anna. So who should we talk about first? Well, let's let's talk about Evie, our our, our main protagonist. Yeah. So Evie, as we kind of said, she's a witch, but it's a secret. Uh, she lives with her Tante Hansa, who's her aunt, who is a well-known witch, but she's kind of like her aunt is like, she's helped people and she saved the king and her family has kind of served the kingdom. So everybody kind of turns a blind eye to the fact that she's a witch. Am I right, ladies? They're like, oh, I just want to go and like get my my treatment for my ailment. But yeah, witch is bad. Burn, burn the witches. And it's like, yeah, of course, like, y- you know, you love us. You know, you love us witches. She gets a free pass because hers, her magic is mainly used as healing magic. And the royalty just can't quite give that up, even though they We're really know where it's coming from. They can just excuse it as, as as just ancient herbal remedies. Right. We're transitioning to the, you know, physicians and science and all of that, but they're still kind of holding to the old ways that work. So Evie um, has had an interesting life, a tragic past, which we won't get into because we want you to read that for yourself. But she's um, she's a brave girl. She's strong. She's smart. She's a problem solver. She doesn't spend a lot of time wallowing in self-pity. She's funny. And she's a very capable crew person on a ship, which was rad. The thing about Evie that made her almost my favorite character is that she is a lot like me in that she is the consummate people pleaser. Oh, She sir, I mean, it, to her detriment, to my detriment, <laughs> she she does anything in her power to try to make others happy. And that can that can sound as maybe a bad thing for a female protagonist, but it's it's actually very human in so much that I really related to it myself, because a lot of her decisions as a character are to try to improve everything around her to the detriment of herself many times. That's a really great way to describe Evie. Uh, Very humanizing, very relatable. I just want to say. I, that made me sound incredibly selfless. I, I don't mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the podcast Jesus, don't you know? So, Anna, we don't really know a whole, whole lot about her. Um, we know that she's really fun. We know that she was sweet and kind and a good friend, um, but could be daring and brave. And then we meet Met, who is a little bit more withdrawn. She's a little bit more ladylike and soft. She's kind of a romantic in a very sad sort of way. Yes. She's 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 sad and she's a romantic. Um she's very trusting in a lot of ways and she's very kind after she earns the friendship of Evie. Right. And she's very very nice balance to Evie. And they have some great scenes and some great dialogue together, which is really um which is really nice to read. She ends up lending a lot of the strength to Evie as a character, both in her motivations and as well as just her emotions. Strong, silent type. Right. So then there's Nick, 
who is the crown prince. He is also sort of a romantic, soft-hearted character. He's a musician. He is kind of, you know, a reluctant prince. He wants to serve the nation and serve the people and do well, but he doesn't want to conform to a lot of the palace's rules. Um, but he has sort of a, a poetic, romantic soul. He still is, you know, kind of brawny and kind of athletic and also um, like a good sailor ship person. But uh, but he's not just like a total meathead or a total like emo kid. And he is the best friend of Evie. They grew up together. They, you know, played in the waves together. They've been through a lot together. And they're just they have a great relationship, the two of them. Her dad is the the official royal fisherman. So it was kind of okay for them to be raised together as children. Whereas normally someone from her station would not be allowed to associate with he. And then there is Evie's main romantic love interest. Iker. Iker is... What a great name. It is a great name. And he is just just your typical roguish... He's a rake. He's dashing. He's known as being a little bit of a philanderer, but he sure seems to he sure seems to be into Evie. Right. And um another side of him comes out around Evie, but he's fun. He's traveled the world. He knows he's got to settle down and do his like princely duties, you know, a little bit up the street where his part of the kingdom is, but he's trying to like kind of sow his wild oats and have fun and live life to the fullest while he can. And he um definitely don't want to spoil anything. He's a main driver of so many plot points and perhaps in ways that you don't see coming either. Uh so more than just surface level rogue for me. Had a little bit more a little bit more purpose. Oh, I don't mean that in a shallow way. I mean rogue like like the Han Solo type. I mean, he's got a he has a soft center that only comes out around his Leia, if you will. Yeah. Yes, I love this. Uh, but you know he's he's definitely a a um he still has a bit of the teenager in him. Uh, one last character I just want to barely touch on is um is Hansa, her tante Hansa, her aunt. She is a wonderful, kooky local witch who is a little bit of a guiding character, a little bit of a mentor. Very funny, has like a sharp tongue and a sharp wit. And salty is all heck, and I really loved her. I'm like, can we also have a book about Hansa, please? She has the personality of do I GAF? You yeah. know, I she just she just laughs at everything and she she toys at everything and she's just kind of the the town nut. So wrapping up this first section, let's talk about our appeal scores. For me, this is somewhere between a broad and a mass. And it was hard for me to exactly, exactly hit the nail on the head because, you know, fantasy, especially that of sort of a romantic bent, is not for everybody. So it's hard for me to go straight up mass appeal. But it should be. Like, from my opinion, this book was so fantastic. I'm like, everybody should be reading this book. And most people, I think, are really going to enjoy the bejesus out of it. But since some people might just be, you know, kind of crossing their arms and be reluctant and be like, oh, I don't I don't want to read fantasy and I don't want to read anything with like romance in it. Then it's like, OK, fine, I guess I'll go broad. My initial feeling was the same as you. I was sitting somewhere between broad and mass. 
for for a, many of the same reasons because some people just can't read fantasy and some people just can't read romance and sometimes those people cross over but i thought a little bit more about it and even though those can sometimes be polarizing genres i don't really see a reason to give it anything less than a mass appeal score good good the only way i can think of describe the sea witch is it just goes down smooth Ooh, yeah henny has a really structured but unobtrusive magic system so that for people who are really into fantasy they have that but it's not it's not so strong that someone who just can't stand fantasy is going to be turned off she has a really strong knack for teenage romance and there's a lot of really fun tidbits of history and lore that give a really solid rooting to the world but it doesn't go into chapters and chapters of world building again it Everything in it is is designed to be digestible. I think that's a really beautiful way to speak about Sea Witch. So if you haven't read it yet, um, it's definitely not a summer read or anything like that. But I think it would be fun to read it at the end of summer as we're starting to transition slowly into fall. And there's just a grit, a saltiness, a little bit of magic in the air. But you still have that just beachy sea tossed wave feeling and we have one listener out there emily you know who you are <gasps> hi emily you have to read this book i'm sure she's already read it oh i, I hope she has she is our mermaid listener she's a real life she's mermaid. a real mermaid she's a real mermaid okay so thank you guys so much for listening please get a nice drink get a snack settle in for our interview with the amazing incomparable sarah henning and we'll talk to you in a bit. And stick around after for our final spoiler section and execution scores. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. So Sarah is the writer of our book this week, which is Sea Witch, um, an absolutely enchanting novel, sort of the untold story of Ursula, of The Little Mermaid, and how she got to be that way. So we are very thrilled to have Sarah, and we cannot wait to start talking to her about this beautiful book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So Sarah, the first thing I want to know is, how long has Sea Witch been living in your head? <laughs> Um, we sold the book in 2015 and, um, it really came about because as an adult, I read the, um, original Hans Christian Andersen tale, which is very different than the Little Mermaid Disney version, um, <laughs> with Ursula. <laughs> it's quite different. Um, in fact, the sea witch is actually more of a neutral character. Uh, she looks at this mermaid and she's like, do you want to give up everything you know and everybody you love and your family and friends for a boy that doesn't even know your name? And she knows all the dangers and she still helps her anyway. And so that's who I wanted to explore. And it turned out it wasn't really Ursula. And it was somebody completely different. And uh, so, you know, I would say, I guess, three years. But yeah, that would probably be about right. Three years. So um, I myself, I'm Scandinavian American. So there was a lot about this book that appealed to me. Did you already know a lot about Danish Scandinavian history prior to writing Sea Witch? Or was that something you researched for this novel? 
It was something I researched for this novel. Um, I realized that Henning is a, it can be a Scandinavian first name, but it's my married name and I'm told it's German. Um, so <laughs> I am not actually Scandinavian at all. But I did do quite a bit of research. Um, there actually is a lot of um, real history within Sea Witch. Uh, they really, there really was like this witch hunter king called King Christian the Fourth. He did a lot of great other things for Denmark, but he um, really liked uh, trying and then burning women that he thought were witches. And so he makes it into the story as well as a real witch named Marin Splid, who I have as, as a related witch to the main character Evie. And she was his most famous victim. Um, she was an outspoken business owner, and uh, she was <laughs> burned at the stake. Um, and actually, the, the Danes actually really enjoy burning women. <laughs> they probably burned more women than anybody in Scandinavia during the witch hysteria. <laughs> so I did a lot of research about that. And then also there's a real holiday that is actually celebrated still today that is in the story. Um, it's every June 23rd. I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's um, Scott Hans Afton. It's uh, St. John's Eve. And they burn dolls of witches on beaches. Um on June 23rd, so right after the solstice. Uh, so, yeah, I did do quite a bit of research, and it was really fun to kind of fall down that rabbit hole of history that I'm not that familiar with. We don't study a lot in the United States. So it was it was a great, great experience. Oh, absolutely. And that was some of my favorite stuff in the book, um, since I'm a little bit of a history buff and a history nerd. And I thought all of that was handled so eloquently and, you know, really gets your ire up as a cool modern female chick i was like how dare they be burning us <laughs> right i know so I, I didn't get a chance to even ask sandra about this is the pelting with bread is that a real thing too <laughs> it's a real thing um i was like oh i have to put that in i love bread <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can pelt me with bread i'm totally fine with that yeah that, that was one of my favorite scenes in the book personally <laughs> Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed that. I was like, I have to put this in. It has to be part of this festival. Because I did extend that festival isn't as long or as early as it is in the book. But it seemed like something fun for them to do while uh, the mermaid's trying to fall in love in four days. Oh, absolutely. It definitely gives a little context and a little richness to their their village, their kingdom. Mm -hmm. So we love you. Thank you. (laughs) We love villains. Uh, Did they... What they have to say typically appeal to you as well? Um, yes and no. I think as I've become an adult, I understand more of the motivations of villains. You know, like I think when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, yeah, bad guy, whatever. But then, um, you know, reading Harry Potter, uh, it was really interesting you know, you think that the Slytherins are all, they're all bad. They're all bad. But then as adults, it's so funny because um, one of the things writers ask each other, which house you're in, and so many writers are Slytherin and they love it and they talk about it. And it's really interesting because, you know, just reading those books, you're like, oh, they're villains, you know, and then you look at them as the whole person and they're not, they're just ambitious people um, who happen to align themselves with the wrong person. And um, so I think I do understand villains more as an adult. I was never necessarily attracted to them as kids. I've had a lot of people come up and say, oh, I loved Ursula. She was my favorite. She was my favorite. And I was like, oh, I love the mermaid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's been a change for me, actually. But I mean, I think that villains are fun. You know, there's a reason that people like to play them and, you know, in school plays or, you know, whatever. It's they're, it, it's fun to be bad when you're necessarily good all the time and nobody gets hurt like in real life. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair. So wait, I mean, now we have to know what house are you in? 
Oh, <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm kind of divergent. I am a slither puff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, because I, I'm a Hufflepuff because I'm nice and then Westerner, you know, um, but then I'm also ambitious like a Slytherin. Uh, so that's where I identify the most. I've taken the test and, you know, usually actually kind of splits me up between Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff and Slytherin. So all I know is I'm not a Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's fascinating. I am a Gryffindor myself. I, I, yeah. I still disagree with that. I think she's a Slytherin. <laughs> I, I'm Ravenclaw. <laughs> you know what? Actually, it's a very Slytherin thing to lie about your house. Did you know that? <laughs> right. Oh, shoot. Now everybody knows. Everybody found me out. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah Henning. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so what is the first story that you remember writing? Oh, man. So I used to draw, um, I used to draw, you know, like just like construction paper pictures and then staple them together and call them a story. So like I was writing stories before I actually, you know, knew how to write words. Uh, but I, you know, I do remember when I was probably 11 or 12, I wrote a novel. <laughs> I'm using air quotes that you can't see. Um, that was about, it was kind of like lost. It was about some kids on a school bus and there's a storm and they end up on an island together. And then they have to basically like Lord of the Flies, everything together. Although I hadn't read Lord of the Flies yet. So I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, and then I actually, I ended up sending it off to Penguin because, you know, I, I recognized the little penguin guy in all my books. And I did get like a letter back from an editor. And I wish I had saved it. It would be total gold like now. Oh. Um, but, you know, like on a hard disk, I sent it. <laughs> wanted. And um, so I do remember that story quite a bit. Uh, I wish that I had it. My parents have moved since then. So I probably they probably don't even have that disk anymore. But then I, I became a journalist because I, you know, I wanted to tell stories. And um, it didn't really matter to me if they were made up or if they were real. So after I worked on that, I kind of threw myself into journalism. So that's those are the stories I remember the most actually are about real people. Well, that's fascinating. I love that. So why did you move from journalism into novel writing? Well, I think that you can never forget the things that you really want to do. Like if you really have dreams, they don't die when you're an adult and you have a mortgage and kids. And so I, you know, I found journalism because I thought it was more stable and um, normal <laughs> than novel writing. Um, I, I really do like stability. And so, uh, you know, the idea of going to an office every day sounded really great. And, but, you know, I just could not, let go of the idea that I always wanted to write books. And so um, actually, when I started my very first job out of school, it was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Scranton Times Tribune, um, I started writing novels again, like seriously. And, um, and then I dropped them for a few years to have my first kid and then picked it back up. And, you know, and it's, it's like, I just, I always wanted to do it. And, uh, and I think it's important to show children. I mean, this is what I tell myself when I have to go work on revisions or write, um, with my small kids, but, um, I think it's important to show them that when you're an adult, you can still have dreams. You know, you don't just have to go to your day job every day and just, you know, bring home a paycheck. You can have literal dreams, whether they're, you know, it's writing or doing something like American Ninja Warrior, you know? I love that. I agree. We are all made to do better things than just go to work, pay bills and die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, this book is a fantasy. Uh, your next book is a contemporary. That's are right. you um are you interested in not sort of getting like pigeonholed into a genre? Um I think that that's actually part of my journalism background. Um you know, even if you're on a beat, you write different stories every day. 
And uh, so I actually, I got into this, I got my agent writing adult crime fiction and Sea Witch came about because I was um, at home on maternity leave with my second child. And I, I was like, I cannot murder people right now. I just can't do it. And so <laughs> I had always wanted to write YA. Like I, I love reading it. And so I just thought, oh, I'll take a stab at this. Um, and it got way more um, murdery as I went along, um, <laughs> kind of circled back. But, um, so yeah, I, I have interest in writing all sorts of things. You know, I would love to go back to writing crime. Um, I love writing fantasy. I think it's really fun. And, uh, and especially historical fantasy, there's a thread of real history, like we talked about in this book. And, um, I really love doing research and grounding it in um, an actual historical setting. And then there's also contemporary, you know, that um, speaks to me quite a bit from my journalism days. Uh, this book, the the 2019 book is called Throw Like a Girl. And it's a um, it's a sports romance, basically. Yes. And, uh, yes. Because my when I was in journalism, I spent most of my time as a sports journalist, both as a copy editor and a reporter. And so this is sort of my um, this is my one for my sportos, <laughs> my sports I- friends. I am thrilled for that book. I cannot wait. Thank you. What is your favorite step of the novel writing process? I actually really like drafting. I know a lot of writers who love to get it over with, who fast draft where they write 10,000 words a day and they have a whole, you know, really crappy first draft in a week. Um, But I actually really like sitting there and um, imagining things. I really like the drafting process. And I tend to revise as I go. So my drafts are usually a lot cleaner than most folks, um, even if I'm writing pretty fast for me, which would be like, you know, 2000 words a day is really fast for me, because I have a full time job and kids and don't have all the time in the world to write. So I, I really do revel in it. I'm revising right now. And it's like my brain wants to fall out of my head, but I really enjoy drafting. Wow, you are a busy bee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And honestly, that's, I'm not unusual. Uh, probably 90% of us published writers have a day job. And then several of us have kids, you know, full-time parenting and, and working and trying to make things work. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so w- would you call your novel writing an, a second full-time job then? Absolutely. So, um, we love to ask people this question. Everyone has a book that they wish that they had been the one to write. What book do you wish that you could have written instead of the original author? Oh, my gosh. Um, let's see. Well, I really I love the Six of Crows duology um, by Lee Bardugo. I think it's amazing. I wish <laughs> that I were smart enough to write that. It's um, I, I, I really do love it. Um, so probably that's my top answer. I could go on and on, but we'll just go with that one. <laughs> that's a good pick. Uh, yeah. So this question is dear to my heart. Um, I read that you're an ultra runner. Um, I am. <laughs> I, I'm a runner. I'm actually training for a half marathon this month. Oh. So not ultra running. Um, <laughs> so tell us a bit about how you got into long format running and why it appeals to you. Okay. Well, so long format running. Ultra running is anything over a marathon. So that's how it's defined. And it's typically done on trails. And I ran marathons for a long time. Um, my dad has run 24 marathons, so I was always like, I'm going to run 25. <laughs> and, but then I, I moved back to Kansas after this stint on the East Coast. I mentioned Scranton, Pennsylvania, but I also lived in West Palm Beach, Florida for five years. And moved back to Kansas and fell in with this trail group. And 
I was like, I am not going to run an ultra marathon. Like they all ran ultras and I was like, no, it's fun. Just hanging out in the woods, whatever. I have a small kid. And you know, those people just rub off on you after a while. <laughs> You're like, Oh, marathon was a bad, let's do 50 K let's do 50 miles. Um, the longest one I've done is a hundred K, which is about 62 miles in a day. And I actually, um, this is a, tr- so runners love to eat, right? So yes. I, um, I was finishing it up and we finally got cell service because usually you don't have much cell service at these things. And I texted my husband and I was like, this is my Chipotle order. We are nine <laughs> miles from being done because usually a pacer with you um, for the last half of a, of a marathon. And the pacer really is, it's a person who's not entered in the race, but they remind you to eat and drink because after a while you forget. Um, and you, like your body signals are all messed up. Like you don't remember that you're hungry or thirsty. And so I texted my order and my pacer's order and we met my husband at the finish line and I was like, oh, burrito. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, and I really enjoy it because I can plot and if I'm running with my friends, we can talk about stuff and, you know, they've all known about Sea Witch and Throw Like a Girl for a long time and, um, have heard, you know, every little piece about publishing <laughs> and probably are experts, honestly, at this point. Um, but it's, it's a really cool community. It's a really big community, um, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. If, if you want to learn more about it, there's a really great documentary called um, Unbreakable, and it's about the Western States 100, which is one of the more famous races. Oh, Scott's looking horrified, like, oh, my God, I already have to keep up with this part of Sandra's running life. And now she's going to be an ultra runner. Awesome. <laughs> Scott is a great at least, at spectator. At the trailer, it'll make you want to go for a run, like no matter how long. Oh, absolutely. That's totally my jam is trail running. So I hear you. Scott thinks we're crazy, but he supports us. Okay. Actually, one of my trail runner friends, when she was reading See What, she texted me because she's like, oh my gosh, you got trail running in it. Because there's this little snippet where they're running through the mountains. And I was like, I did. That's for you. Oh. So obviously you have you have your next book, your contemporary book. Do you have any plans for the future for any other genre fiction? Uh, let's see. <laughs> Publishing makes it difficult to talk about anything. Uh-huh. Um, I don't <laughs> but I do have, so I do have a couple of fantasy, um, projects and ideas in the works. And then, um, I also have, um, a straight like historical fiction with no fantasy element, um, that I've been kind of working on for the last year, but it's, um, based on, um, a true event that happened in where I live in Kansas and Lawrence, Kansas. And so the history on it is just ridiculous and, and the research. And so it's, and I think it actually, because it's so close to my heart, it's taking me a while, you know, like, um, you really don't want to screw up things that are in your backyard. <laughs> and, uh, it's about Quantrill's raid, which I don't know if you know anything about. It's not something they teach in history very often. Um, if you're not from here, but it is basically the largest, um, civilian massacre during the civil war where a man named Quantrill, and if you've seen the movie Ride with the Devil, um, Tommy McGuire's character actually rides with Quantrill and does these horrible things. But they came and they they burned down um, Lawrence, Kansas, because it was an abolitionist stronghold. And they decided to murder any boy old enough to hold a gun. And, uh, and they probably burned about 90% of the town and killed 200 people. And so I have a historical book I've been kicking around that is kind of set around that incident. And uh, so, yeah, I guess that's one I can talk about, but the other ones I can't. <laughs> when uh, when you said it was set in Lawrence, Kansas, my history yeah. buff mind started reeling. I'm like, events in Lawrence, Kansas, Sandra, go, go, you can do this. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, Lawrence has a pretty rich history. It's um, It was a kind of famous frontier town. It was one of the first places settled when they opened up Kansas and Nebraska. And uh, and it also has quite a bit of history as far as writing is concerned. Um, Langston Hughes lived part of his life here. And so uh, and so did Williams S. Burroughs. He died here. So we, we have quite a bit of little, little history here for the literary scene. Super cool. Let's give it up for Kansas, yeah. everybody. I love it. <laughs> No one's gonna come visit, I know, but it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got the you've got the Royals, which you know I'm a Giants yes. fan, so we can't support that. But you know that's fine. Yeah, the Jayhawks. The you know I always say I live in a town that has a really good basketball team, and that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a football fan then too? Since uh, I believe Throw Like a Girl has some football elements in it. Yes. So Throw Like a Girl is about a down spiraling softball player who's recruited to play the not so backup quarterback on her ex-boyfriend's football team. So oh, <laughs> love it. Uh, yeah. So it's it has quite a bit of football in it. Um, and I am a big football person, um, Chiefs, more oh. than anything else. But I did cover a lot of high school football. Um, I actually like paid my bills in college covering high school football and basketball and um and softball so i i never actually played softball or football but i know quite a bit about them and couldn't say no actually i started writing that um when the royals were in the world series oh yeah so i was watching i don't watch a lot of baseball until like october um and the royals have given me a pretty good excuse recently not so great this year but (laughs) that's okay i almost walked out of the room when you said that you were a chiefs fan i'm a raiders fan myself (laughs) Fan, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm born and bred, you know, Chiefs fan, and uh, and you know, we have the University of Kansas here, but their football team is has not been good since about 2008, and that was kind of a freak thing. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> so, is there any lesser known or underappreciated books uh, you would like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, YA fantasy or anything. Uh, anything, anything that you feel like, you know, the book that you want to shove in people's hands that not enough of us are talking about. Well, the one I always mention um, is by Robert McCammon, who's actually a pretty famous writer, but uh, it's a series that I don't think gets a lot of play. It's um, the first book in the series is called Speaks the Nightbird. And I think the series is actually technically called the Matthew Corbett series, but they are historicals that are based around a a uh, pre-revolutionary James Bond-like character who's an orphan and a dork. And I love him so much. <laughs> um, and so they're really, really, really well done. Beautiful writing, great history, just a really unique look at this country before it was even a country. It was it, The books are set in like 1699, 1702, etc. He's got several of them. And they're from kind of a small press. And so you can find them occasionally on Amazon. I don't, I've never seen them in an actual bookstore, but they are incredible. And I'm always pushing Robert McCann's Matthew Corbett books. You've got me sold. <laughs> You'd love them. They're beautiful. So um, before we let you go, um, we wanted you to give you a chance to let our listeners know where to find you. Oh, like. In person so, and online? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what, Are you what's doing? your home address, your social security <laughs> number? <laughs> uh, so you can find me at um, sarahenningwrites.com. I just actually got done kind of touring for my first week for Sea Witch. Uh, we had a launch here in Lawrence, and then I went to Books of Wonder in New York, and then um, East City Bookshop in D.C. 
But uh, and I had an event in Colorado um, at Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins. However, next week on Thursday, August 16th, I will be in Wichita, Kansas with Bree Barton, who wrote Heart of Thorns that came out the same day as Sea Witch. Uh, Bree and I have done two events together so far. This will be our third. Uh, we just decided to band together when we realized our books were coming out the same day from the same imprint and they're the same genre. So, uh, so I have that event. And then, um, other than that, I have an event October 4th in Kansas city. It's a, um, women in YA panel actually put on by the Kansas city public library and the Johnson County public library. And I will be with, um, L.L. McKinney, who has A Blade So Black, Natalie C. Parker, who has Seafire, which comes out August 28th, and it's amazing, um, Miranda Acevedo, who has a book called The Deepest Roots that comes out in September, and I think that might be all of us, actually, but maybe Tessa Gratton as well. She um, she has the book uh, Queens of Venice Lear that came out this past spring but then she also has a YA that's coming out in September called Strange Grace. So uh, it'll be a really good panel like we're super excited about it. Oh man, that sounds like a party. If people can get to that, you cannot miss this. You cannot. S- Sandra is literally yeah. booking tickets. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, like <looking laughs> <at> ticket prices. <laughs> it's free. Um no, it'll be really fun. I actually just did a panel in Kansas City for the Kansas City Public Library with a lot of those people. Um, Megan Bannon, who wrote A, Bur- a Bird in the Blade that uh, came out in June, and it's amazing. Um, Elle McKinney that I mentioned. Uh, Adib Karam, who has a book coming out called Darius the Great is Not Okay uh, on August 28th. And then Miranda. Um, and they're all really wonderful. We have a great group of Kansas City area writers. Like, I just, it's an amazing community, and it's mostly YA, which is just crazy. And I feel very, very fortunate to have all these people very close by and in my life. Oh, wow. That is incredible and super inspiring. Thanks for sharing that with us. No problem. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It really was a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, everybody. Why aren't you reading Sea Witch right now that the interview's over? Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Welcome back to the spoiler section. We're going to keep this short and sweet and a little salty. You know, the ocean. (laughs) So now that we've all read the book, we've listened to Sarah talk about the book. We love the book. So lovely. Um, I loved the ending of this book. I love when it goes full, dark, weird fairy tale. When Evie merges with the grand bewitching black octopus and... She has her creepy garden. Oh my god, I was just like, yes, I just want to live here. And I love how time passes so differently for her under the ocean. I love that people came to visit her, her Hansa, Nick, um, and her, her auntie gave her the magic books she needed to learn how to be a powerful witch. A be- little bit late, Hansa, but okay. Right, I mean, you could tell she was trying to protect her, she was Like, no, you're too soft-hearted, you're too, you know, people-pleasing, I think, was her big thing. So she didn't think that Evie was fully ready for magic yet. But now it's like, well, cat's out of the bag, and you're an octopus person under the ocean now, so I guess I'll give you these books. So, uh, can I see how awesome it is that the octopus was Chekhov's gun? I didn't see that coming. I mean, from, from one of the very first chapters, oh, an octopus has taken up residency in the cove. Okay. 
And, and that's just kind of a fun little detail until you realize, oh, that was actually really important. And I mean, here's the thing is, Hansa was right, because Evie didn't know what she was doing. And she tried so hard to be serving to others and to the community. And she brought the Black Plague of the Ocean to her town. She upset the balance of the ecosystem of the ocean. And she did all that. And she now has to live with that. And it's like, oh, that's good fairy tale stuff. I love the really strong theme of no good deed goes unpunished. Absolutely. That's fairy tale things. It, exactly. Everything that she's trying to do is is right. She just, she, th- there is a give and take with magic in this world. And anything that you cr- that you put out there, you have to pay a price. Exactly. All magic comes with a price. <laughs> and that price isn't always of yourself. No, exactly. It's not always obvious and it can be disguised as something else. Um, going back to what I said, though, I, I appreciated so much that Nick came and visited her forever. He had to move on with his life. He had a freaking kingdom to run. And it's heartbreaking and tragic that he had to do that. But I appreciate that he never fully gave up on her. I mean, yes, you can tell from a seasoned reader that the two love each other and aren't willing to admit it. But I still felt like their love was natural and... um. It was very sweet. I get the impression that Nick would have come around in the end and he would have forced his mother to allow him to marry her if if they had been able to profess their love to each other and she did not become the sea witch. And well, yeah, I believe he really, truly did love her. Um, Now, Iker, I know that he was a rogue and, you know, all that. But I was surprised at how quickly he turned on her. And I was just like, oh, my God, you suck. I was so mad at him. I was like, can a narwhal just come up and like stab him through the heart with its horn? I really, okay, I, I think that the book did a good enough job of of telegraphing it without, I mean, without being obvious, but I really didn't like the way that he turned so quickly, the way that he was being so dishonest with Evie. I mean, and, and to be fair, he didn't think that he was being dishonest. He even said, you understand. Like, you're basically going to be my floating side chick for the rest of my life. That's cool, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know how this works. You always knew how this works. That's, that's why this is different. And I mean, like, you can love somebody and circumstances can keep you apart. But again, I thought to myself, hmm, would I really want to be the sea-bound floating side woman to this prince for the rest of my life? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be somebody's dirty little secret on the boat forever. Um... And I appreciated how Evie was grappling with like that, like she kind of knew she knew subconsciously, but she wanted so badly for it not to be that way. I don't know. It it was heartbreaking. It was just so tragically beautiful. So one thing I want to speak about is Anne Met. Freaking amazing character. I loved the twist that Anna was plotting revenge the whole time. She totally knew who she was. She totally knew who she was the whole time. And it actually did come as a surprise for me because the book really just made it very clear through most of it that, no, she didn't know she was Anna and she was just really just in it for true love. And that's an expectation that you get from it being a retelling or in this case, a prequel to The Little Mermaid. Um, I love that I was kind of like, I didn't know which of the two females was going to end up being the sea witch. I honestly didn't. I was like, I don't know if Anne Met 
is the sea witch at the end or if Evie is? I really thought that Anne Met was. I, I, I did. Oh, I thought, cool. Yeah. I thought that she was going to have a very sad ending. Well, okay. I thought that there, I thought there was going to be possibly three different endings and none of them really came true. <laughs> okay. I thought that Anne Met was going to have a horrible Little Mermaid-esque ending and she would become the sea witch. Mm-hmm. I thought that maybe as the consummate people pleaser that she is, I thought that maybe Evie would sacrifice herself Ooh. so that Anne Met could stay on land and the sea would make her the sea witch. As well, it, it, the plot leads us to believe very strongly that that's going to be an outcome. And and the third option, and this is really where I thought it was going to go, and it completely subverted this, is I thought it was going to be female friendship is true love after all. Oh. I thought it was going to be a Frozen-esque ending, where the true love was really the friendship between the two women. But, and then, that but been, then how would we get a sea? How would we get Ursula out of that? Well, that's a very good question. I completely forgot about halfway through the book that that, <laughs> that was where this book was going. Um, I love... How the sea changed Anna. Um, I love how it made her so ethereal. She wasn't human anymore. And she didn't really think and operate like a human. I was so fascinated by her memories of what it was like as a mer person under the sea. Um, I loved all of that. I loved everything in those flashbacks to how she got to this point. And she's become this vengeful driven creature that's not like our Anna that we knew so you wouldn't see it coming and because the book the characters don't really know a lot about mermaids they kind of know what everybody knows oh mermaids are dangerous but it's like so they don't really know what to expect and uh, Evie's kind of scrambling and trying to figure it all out but she doesn't really know so we're kind of on the same page as as the characters which I thought was cool. Here's my over-analysis point of the episode. Oh, geez. There's a really cool theme of want in this book. Want, desire. And and the damage and that, that can cause. And I think it's really interesting that, to me, the mermaids without souls were basically beings of want. Their, all, mm-hmm. their whole motivations were really around what they want covetousness i can't say that word yeah you know they 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 want this person to live they want to be happy they want to see the sea they they just they want these specific things and and with and met when she loses her soul and she just becomes a creature of want that want becomes twisted and becomes vengeful yes um she was a great great female villainess and, you know, you can argue at the end, is Evie a villain? I don't know. Or is she just a magical creature? Is she, uh, in, in our interview, as you just heard, Sarah describes how in the original story, the, the Sea Witch is a neutral character, really. Um, and I like that. I, I like that things don't end totally black and white. And I love that she uses the voice to animate Anna. It's like, well, you got your BFF back. For whatever it's worth. At least you got someone to talk to now. Sorry, there's no singing crab in this one. <laughs> Sebastian's off to the off to the side. So let's just for funsies, let's give this one of our little scores. Alright. Do you have an idea? How many jars of octopus bewitched ink out of five would you give this story? I'll start. 
In case you guys don't know or don't realize, Scott and I are obsessed with octopuses. They're Scott's favorite animal, and they're one of my favorite animals, and they're a huge focal point and source of fascination and love in our lives. So anytime we read anything about octopuses, we, um, we kind of freak out. We love them. Scott is one. Well, yeah, basically. <laughs> Scott is more octopus than human at this point. Um, so for me, I'm going to have to give this... I'm going to give this four out of five jars. Um, I, You know, it's hard as a reviewer. It's hard to always... You know, you got to step back. You got to look at things a little bit critically sometimes. But there is just... There's really no big faults to be found with this book. Um, it was beautiful. It was whimsical. It captivated me. It took me out of my life, which has been a little bit of a hard couple of weeks for me here. And it just filled me with wonderment. And I loved it. I'm also giving it four out of five octopus jars full of ink. I'm doing the same thing where I'm just taking a step back and taking a critical eye to it. And my one and only concern is that while it does pass the Bechdel test, It does it by the skin of its teeth. And as a hetero cis male, I'm really forgiving of it because the book's written in a really romantic style that's that harkens back to the idea of a romance like The Little Mermaid. And it takes that and it subverts it for you at the end. So I think that it's okay, but. I feel that if Sarah Henning gave Anna a a voice a little bit earlier in the book, it would have added a little bit more emotional depth to all of the characters and and might have done a little bit better to to strengthen her in my mind as a strong female character. But I think that small little thing for me is actually a small little thing and I I just think that everything else about it is done beautifully it's a beautiful magical novel and i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did and we again want to thank sarah henning for taking some time out of her busy freaking life to chat with us and just geek out about books and her process um super cool and thank you guys all for joining us thank you scott thank you sandra and as always please keep reading past your bedtime So what I would love to know is because oh, oh, oh yeah please please did we lose you or are we are we missing oh, something I'm here. oh, oh, oh good, sorry. Good. it okay. seemed like we were introducing you we, we were um, interrupting interrupting you. you on something oh I thought you guys were interrupting each other <laughs> <laughs> we do that a lot too <laughs> I'm trying to be quiet.